Thank you to the musicians and thank you also to Rodney and uh, those who have shared already their testimonies. Uh, can I add to the welcome that Rodney gave to all the folk who are here, for those who are visitors. My name is Peter Granger. I'm also part of the pastoral team here in Charlotte Chapel. And it's my privilege, as we always do in here in this church, to share something from the Bible, God's Word. Let's just bow in a moment's prayer, though, first of all, because we need God's help to understand that word. So will you join me in a moment's prayer? Gracious God, we thank you for what you have done in the past. And what we've heard this evening, you are still doing in the lives of individuals. Wherever we are individually in relationship to you, we pray this evening that you'll help us to understand more of your great plan for us and what it means to belong to your family and to be reconciled with you. And so help us and help me to explain things clearly. Help us to understand and to receive what you say with repentance turning from wrong thinking and ways and with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Towards the end of last year, there was a survey uh, by the Relief and Development Agency, Tear Fund, uh, which made headline news in the UK press and BBC and all the different news agencies. It revealed a somewhat surprising fact uh, that in our so-called secular society here in the UK, 40%, that is some 20 million adults, pray. 13 million people said they pray once a month. 12 million at least once a week, and 9 million people said that they pray every day. If you were to take a survey of the population of the world, I think the figure would be far, far higher. In fact, in many societies where I've worked in Asia and Africa, almost everyone would say that they pray. And there the big question is not whether you pray or not, but how do you ensure that your prayers are heard and answered? Do some people have a better chance with God than other people? Are some prayers more effective than other prayers? And if you'd gone back 2,000 years when Jesus walked on the earth and taken the survey of the population of Israel, you would have got a high percentage of agreement about which people and which prayers are heard by God. But as we continue our series, we've been going through Luke's Gospel, the account of the life of Jesus. We've called it Good News of Great Joy for All People. We find that as so often, Jesus says something that goes against the normal grain of thinking. And in order to make the point, he tells one of those stories he told. They were called parables. Stories which catch people unawares. Uh, stories with a sting in the tail. T-A-L-E. And this particular story is about two men who go up to the temple in Jerusalem to pray. A very, two very different men. Uh, the normal title, if you know the Bible at all, it's normally called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, but I want to suggest, along with one American commentator, that it could easily be called something different. The parable of the two prayers. So what I want to do is just read it and then explain a little bit what Jesus was saying. 
It will help to have a Bible in front of you. There are Bibles in the pews. If you just reach over and grab one. Uh, This is Luke 18. We're going to read the parable and the little bit that follows on, which is linked with it. Luke 18, 9 to 17. It's page 1052 if you have a pew Bible. Luke 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. This is God's word. Let me just say three simple things about these verses. What I want to suggest in the story is that there are three movements in the story. And I'll try and stick to these three points and there's something on PowerPoint which may help you to follow where we're going. Alright, the three movements are this. One, going up. Two, looking down. And three, up and down. Alright, so let's start with going up. Two men, begins Jesus, went up to the temple to pray. Why did they go up? Well, because the temple in question was located in the city of Jerusalem, on the highest point in the region, on Mount Zion. That was its name. They didn't go down into a cave, or in the basement of a building, but they went up. And and that physical location reflected a, a metaphorical reality, that God is up somehow. He is above human beings. And all over the world, people are instinctively, intuitively aware of the fact that there is such a being as God and that he is above us and beyond us. Someone different, greater, higher than us. And so, more often than not, people go up in an attempt to reach God. In the early days of human history, if you read the first book of the Bible called Genesis, you discover that human beings at one time, way back in the early pre-sort of days of early history, they tried to build a tower, it's called the Tower of Babel, to reach up to God, to heaven. Such towers were quite common in that part of the world. They've been excavated, they're called ziggurats, if you're interested in those kind of things. So people go up with a purpose. The purpose is meeting with God, usually to the highest geographical location. Still the case today. I remember way back, it was 1972, in Nepal, uh, in the Himalayan foothills, uh, climbing with a group of people, 
uh, not mountaineering, although we would have called the hill that we climbed a mountain, or certainly a Monroe anyway. Um, I, I was a lot fitter than the rest, uh, unlike today, and uh, now I'm fatter. But uh, uh, I climbed ahead of the rest, and I got to the top of this hill, and I can still visualize it in my mind's eye. It, it was completely deserted, except right at the top there, nobody there, there was a temple. So it was that the two men in this story that Jesus told went up to a temple. And not just a temple, but the temple. The Bible, which is the record of God's dealings with human beings, records how he chose a particular race of people, the Israelites, and he placed them in their own land. And within that land, he selected a particular place where his people could communicate with him. It was called the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So the purpose was to meet with God in the place that God had chosen. Now, if you go to Israel today, as I've done, many of you may have done, and you'll know what's there now, there is no longer a temple in this spot in Jerusalem. There's the Muslim Dome of the Rock, which is located right in the middle of that. Uh, but in the days of Jesus, there was this magnificent temple that had been erected by Herod the Great. Can't be absolutely sure what it looked like, but people have done reconstruction. Uh, showing where the men in the parable went up to pray. And the last bit they went up was some stairs, and they climbed up into the precincts of the temple. Right in the middle was the holiest place that only the priests could go in. And they went up to pray. Now it could be that in the story Jesus is telling, these two men just coincidentally happened to decide they needed to go and pray, and they went off privately up to Jerusalem to pray. But it's possible, in fact, probably, likely, for reasons I'll explain in a moment, that they wanted to set time to pray. Uh, there were two special times during every day when you went up to pray. One was at dawn, the other one was about three o'clock in the afternoon. And they were marked by a special ritual which God had also laid down. At these particular times, at dawn and at three o'clock, one of the priests of Israel would enter the court of the temple where there was an altar. And because sin was so serious, he had to sacrifice a lamb as a burnt offering. And he offered it on the altar. It was burnt, mixed with incense. And at that point, as it were, if you want to visualize it this way, at that particular point, the door to heaven was open and you could get access to God and find your sin forgiven so that you could meet with God and pray with confidence. So the people of Israel knew that this barrier that separated them from God, as it were, the door was open twice a day at least. Every day, because sin was so prevalent and so necessary every day that you had a way that you could get through to God. And that was the provision then that God had made. Now, now, the tradition wasn't like our churches. The idea was that the worshippers would go up to pray, the priest would do his bit, offering sacrifices, and the people would stand to pray. Usually they prayed out loud. Uh, not too loudly. We'll discover that someone in the story did pray a lot loudly so everyone could hear him. But normally you prayed your prayers all at the same time. So these two men went up to pray. Okay, that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Looking down. Two men went up to the temple to pray, begins Jesus. And now he introduces the characters. He says, one was a Pharisee, the other one was a tax collector. Now, unless you lived at the time of Jesus, you may well miss the point that he was making in the story. The audience would immediately grasp who the two characters were. They were two very different people at opposite extremes. 
Now, we kind of associate the word Pharisee with someone who's a religious hypocrite and rather proud about his religion. But in fact, that's only because of the teaching of Jesus. Largely because of the teaching of Jesus. When Jesus spoke these words, people thought the Pharisees were not at all like that. In fact, the Pharisees were the most serious religious people in Israel. They were only a small group, a few thousand, but they were very influential because they were the ones who took their faith really seriously. They studied the law of Moses, those first five books of our Bible, the Hebrew Bible. And they tried to put it into practice, to live their lives in a rigorous way, in a way that pleased God. They weren't half-hearted. They were totally sold out. So when Jesus said, a Pharisee, people immediately thought, yeah, upright, God-fearing, highly respected. Now, you couldn't find a greater contrast between a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, no one in any society, as far as I can work out, enjoys paying taxes. But few of us despise tax collectors. I know there's one or two in this congregation, and we, we love you, really, we do. You, 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 you know, you're doing a job that somebody's got to do. But in Jesus' day, tax collectors were not just doing a job, they were doing a job for the hated, occupying Roman power. They were collaborators. And not only did they collect taxes from them, they lined their own pockets at the same time. So if the Romans said, here's a tax, we want ten shekels for this, uh, the tax collector would say to you, I want twenty-five. And he put the other fifty in his back pocket. So when you said the word tax collector, people thought, thief, traitor. Deeply loathed. So, imagine this was a pantomime, which it wasn't, not a parable, but a pantomime. Jesus says there were two characters come on stage, a Pharisee, and everybody goes, ooh, ah, cheers, applause, and a tax collector, boo, hiss, get off. Two very different people. Now, you need to know that to follow what happens in the story, because you get two very different prayers as you get to the heart of the parable. What I want you to notice is that both of the characters look down when they pray. The Pharisee looks down on everyone else. In fact, if you notice, Jesus introduces the story and tells us it's going to be a story addressed to those who are confident of their own righteousness, their own goodness, and look down on everyone else. And the one who looks down on everyone else, surprise, surprise, is the Pharisee. And it's revealed by his prayer. Look at his prayer. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. You're even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. He's full of confidence as he approaches God. He says, if anybody's going to get through to heaven, it's me. It's not indicated by the fact he stood. Everybody stood to pray. Uh, probably the better translation is he stood by himself, apart from all the rest. But he certainly prayed about himself. And what he's doing is comparing himself with everybody else. And from that position, he's superior, looking down like I am on you. Not spiritually, by the way, I'm just because I'm up here. Well, you're up there. I'm looking up, but I'm looking down at you people here. He says, I'm not like all other men. And his superiority is expressed in what he doesn't do and what he does do. He says, I'm not a robber, an evildoer, an adulterer. Like that tax collector as he turns around and sees this other guy trying to pray. I'm not like this tax collector. And listen to what he does. Well, the law of Moses, if you read the Old Testament, said that, that Jewish people, the people of God, should fast once a year on the special day of atonement. 
this guy fasts twice a week. The law of Moses required tithing. That is, you gave a tenth of certain produce to God. He gives a tenth of everything, even down to the spices in his kitchen and the salt. And when he shapes the salt on his chips, he gets, puts a tenth aside for God. Well, whatever. Uh, and the prayer is a recitation of all the things he has done, which he believes will earn him favour with God. For his perception is, surely God marks on a curve and I must be near the top. In fact, I'm probably top of the class. I'm better, he says, than others. And certainly, this tax collector. Now, let's just pause for a moment and see what Jesus is saying here. You see, few of us, I think, would be bold enough to say such things and put ourselves at the top of the class. Well, if you are, I'd be interested to meet you. But almost none of us would put ourselves at the bottom, would we? There's always someone a lot worse than us. The 20th century version of the tax collector. That's why we love these tabloid stories about really wicked, evil people. And we think, boy, that puts my problems into perspective. I'm not as bad as that person. And if we put it honestly, although we probably wouldn't put it so openly as this Pharisee, there are a lot of people below us, even if there may be one or two really good people above us. We see ourselves as somewhere comfortably in the past zone for heaven. If we compare ourselves with the rest of the population. Yeah, I'm not perfect. Yeah, I, but, you know, I've never murdered anybody and I've never committed adultery. Well, maybe you have, but not literally. And I give to good causes and I'm a good neighbour and I help others where I can. But the bottom line is this. As long as I can look down on some people, then I can look up to God with confidence that he will approve of me. That's what the Pharisee thought. That's what a lot of people still think today. That's what religion's about. You do your best, and as long as you can look down on some of the folk, and you're better than most, you can look up to God and you know that he's going to hear your prayer. Now, contrast this with the prayer of the tax collector, which is characterized not by self-congratulations, but by self-abasement. What does he look down on? He looks down on himself. You can see this in his attitude. It's very different from that of the Pharisee. He stands at a distance. When he stood in those temple courts, you, you could either get close to the altar or close to what was happening, or you could stand near the back. A bit like some people do in church. You know, the church is the only place you arrive early to get a back seat. You know, that, that kind of thing. And this guy is at a distance. He says he won't even look up to heaven. He's scared to look up to God. But constantly, he says, he beats his breast. It's actually very rare in the Bible for people to beat their breast. Normally only women did it. Men didn't do it because it was a bit sort of demeaning. But it expressed the fact that the problem lay in your heart. The source of the problem. So, he's got a very simple prayer. He doesn't look up at all. He just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In fact, literally, the literal translation is, God be merciful to me, the sinner. He's under no illusions about himself. He sees his nature as at fault. And this drives him to God in desperate prayer. You see, the tax collector is driven by desperation, not about anyone else, but about himself. While the tax, uh, Pharisee compares himself with others, the tax collector has no one to compare himself with. Except God. And as he does that, he realizes his desperate need. He stands before God guilty. He's got no mitigating pleas. No special factors to bring into account. 
No good deeds that can put him in his, his terrible debit account can make him in credit with God. No, all he can do is throw himself on the mercy of God as he expresses his only hope, his desperate need. God, he says, have mercy on me, the sinner. The word translated have mercy there is a very unusual word. The verb is only found twice in the New Testament. It means to appease someone. To be propitiated. That's someone you've got a bad relationship with. And he realises as far as God is concerned, he stands guilty before God. His only hope is that God might turn away his anger and be reconciled to him. And that's why he's come to the temple. Because he knows it's that special time when that priest offers that lamb on the altar. He's heard that there's a way back to God. The door is open for a moment. A window of opportunity, as it were. And so he comes and throws himself on God's mercy. He is guilty before God and only God can remove his guilt. Now, in summary, look. The Pharisee prays to himself. The tax collector prays to God. Two very different people. Two very different prayers. Now, let's just get finally, to the point of the story, where we started. Which kind of prayer does God hear? If you want to get through to God, if you want to be put right with God, what kind of prayer does God hear? What kind of person does God accept? Here's the sting in the tail. The reversal of all that the hearers of Jesus expected, because if you'd asked them, who, whose prayer would be heard? There's a, a Pharisee in the tax collector go to the temple to pray. Who's going who's to make it? 100%. Pharisee, of course. Tax collector, no chance. Thousand to one shot. Notice the final movement as they leave the temple, up and down. Here's this thing in the tale. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. Jesus says, I tell you, these are words of authority. He says, this is the truth. He goes home justified. It's a word from the law courts. It expresses God's verdict on these two men. The tax collector is justified. To be justified means to be declared innocent. The verb is passive. It means something that's done for you by someone else. And it's expressed in the perfect tense, which means it's done, it's settled. It's the judge pronouncing sentences. This man prays. God says, I hear you. I forgive you. You're justified. Go from here in peace. As the tax collector leaves the temple, his status before God has been changed. He's now in a right standing before God. His sin has been forgiven, his guilt has been removed. What about the Pharisee? Well, he goes out the temple just as he came into it. Just the same in relation to God. He is unjustified, if you like. He is still convinced of his own goodness, his righteousness. Still considering himself and comparing himself favorably with others. He's still estranged before God because he's not faced up to the fact that all of us need to face up to that before God we are sinners in need of his forgiveness and his mercy. And without that we've not got a hope. I'm going to say hope in hell, but certainly a hope for heaven. His prayer had no effect because he didn't ask God for anything. And Jesus concludes with a general principle found several times in the Gospels that hear about prayer, how God treats people who pray. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice the reversal. The story begins with the Pharisee and the tax collector. It ends with the tax collector and the Pharisee the other way around. The tax collector humbled himself before God and God exalted him, put him in a right relationship with himself. He was cast down, God lifted him up. Those who humble themselves, says Jesus, 
are exalted by God. In contrast, those who exalt themselves before God are brought low down by Him. Those who are exalted, who exalt themselves, are humbled. The Pharisee's guilt remains. What was his sin? A sin of pride. In his own goodness before God. And that's why Jesus told the parable. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. The word righteousness and the word justified are from the same verb root. We can either rely on ourselves, our self-justification, or abandon every such attempt and throw ourselves on the mercy of God. See, the difference between the two men in the parable was the Pharisee was conscious of his goodness, while the tax collector was confident of his sinfulness. Martin Luther said this, There are only two sorts of people in the world. Sinners who think themselves righteous, and the righteous who think themselves sinners. Now, almost to the end, this is the conclusion. What's the challenge of the story? Well, the challenge of the story is obvious to everyone who hears it. Am I like the tax collector or am I like the Pharisee? When you leave this place, will you go out of this place justified, right with God, in a new relationship with Him? Or will you go out still trusting in your own goodness that you're going to make it by your own efforts? Well, how can you be justified before God? How can you be put right with God? Well, there are two things necessary. First of all, contrite confession. Expressed simply by the prayer that this man prayed. It wasn't a complicated long prayer. He simply said, God be merciful to me, the sinner. As we saw the word merciful is unusual when I said, because in only one other place, the verb in the New Testament. It's a word used of Jesus when he died on the cross. It says, Jesus made atonement for the sins of the people. He did this by dying on a cross. That's why we've been singing about the blood of Jesus. Bearing the punishment we deserve. Taking our sin and guilt on himself. Now through Jesus, we can experience God's mercy, know God's forgiveness, be put right with God once and for all. You see, as we saw on that picture, there's no longer a temple in Jerusalem. It's an interesting place to go to. If you've never been, I'd encourage you to go and visit. Uh, but you don't need a temple anymore. It's not necessary. It's not necessary for a priest twice a day to go and offer sacrifice of a lamb. Why? Because Jesus, the Lamb of God, died for sin once for all so that the door of heaven might be open to us. So we need to come in contrite confession. And secondly, we need to come with childlike confidence. I think that's why the next story follows on. People bringing babies to Jesus that he might touch them and ask God to bless them. The disciples thought... Children don't count, just like tax collectors. Tax collectors don't count because they're bad. Children don't count because they're not old enough and haven't got anything to offer. Children were truly in those days, even children of wealthy people, were seen and not heard. They had nothing to offer. But Jesus calls the children to him and he says, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. See, children are not excluded from God's kingdom. In fact, Jesus says they're perfect examples of how we enter God's kingdom, with nothing to offer, nothing to bring. That tells us, as we used to sing in Sunday school, I'm not too young to come to Jesus, for he loves the little child. Lovely to hear Stephanie's testimony. She became a Christian at the age of five. That's amazing. Can I say to those of you who've grown up in Christian homes and you put your trust in Jesus as a child, 
And sometimes you hear somebody give a testimony about all the terrible things they did in life and all the life of sin that they lived until they finally came to faith in Christ. Well, that's wonderful that God saves such people, but believe me, you'd be better not living that kind of life and suffering the consequences. But no matter how early or late you come to God, you cannot come like the Pharisee did with a load of things that you think will qualify you. That will gain you entry to God's kingdom. They will bar you from God's kingdom. In the words of another hymn, you simply come and say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. That's what it's about. Final illustration. I was watching the news this week. I'm sure you all saw it. Of that terrible situation in the Gaza Strip where the whole community has been closed down on one side by Israel, the other side by Egypt. No fuel, no light, no supplies. In the middle of this week, uh, the people there bulldozed a couple of holes. And you probably saw the picture of people just streaming through those gaps to get through and coming back with fuel and supplies. I've seen the picture of a guy with a new motorbike. And everyone's asking now, how long is it going to stay open? The Egyptians, will they seal the wall up again so that they're closed in again? Now here's something far more wonderful for Palestinians and Jews, for people everywhere, for children, for adults. When Jesus died on the cross, the door to heaven that had been shut tight was opened. Another old hymn. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. But Jesus himself said that door to heaven is a very narrow door. You have to stoop to enter it. You can't carry any baggage with you. You have to come in contrite confession and childlike confidence. What the Bible calls repentance and faith. And that's those who are being baptized. That's simply what they've done. Certainly not they're better than anyone else. I'm certainly not better than anyone else. Yes, 42% of the UK and most of the people in our world pray. But this parable tells us there are only two kinds of prayer and only one kind that God hears and that God answers. The door's open. Stands wide. The invitation's there. You can think, I'm going to make it by my own efforts. Jesus said, you'll be shut out. You say, I've done a lot of bad things. Jesus said, you say, God be merciful to me, the sinner, and you'll be welcomed in through the narrow door that leads to life. Let's pray together.